Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. <laughs> okay, now we're going. It's time to do the notes at the end of the week. So here's the concept. Well, I explained it before the news, but the idea is to kind of give you guys some movie tips that maybe you've sort of emptied your quiver of all the things you could think of, all the arrows you could think of. Though you should watch maybe either version of Broken Arrow now that I, it's not even on anybody's list. Uh, so what I did was I asked our two panelists, who I will introduce in just a second, to kind of make lists of movies that, you know, they're either not that well known or people have started to forget them. You know, some of them were never well known. Uh, some of them, uh, the mists of time are beginning to shroud them because obviously there's just tons and tons of movies. And so we picked two panelists to be on the nose with me today uh, who are uh, movie fans in, in different ways. Susan Bigelow is a librarian, a columnist for CT News Junkie, a science fiction fantasy novelist. Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian and writer and sometimes a, a movie podcaster. Uh, he and Stan Makita do uh, fantasy film ball when they feel up to it. Um, so m one of the things <laughs> that I said is, all right, so Sean makes a list and Susan makes a list and then of like 10 or 15 movies that fall into this category and anything that's on both people's list, they will discuss. And it, and then I'll make a list too, just for the heck of it. So it turned out that Sean and uh, <laughs> Susan didn't have any movies in common, but that I have movies in common with both of them. So I guess maybe I'm just going to begin by asking uh, both of you. And Sean, I'll start with you. I don't know, what was it like making the list? I mean, did you have to sort have to make certain, uh, I don't know, did you have to sort of research things or was it all just there in your head right away or... Was it a fun process trying to remember movies that, that would fit into this category? I would say for the most part, it was pretty, uh, like there's probably like seven of those movies I always would recommend to people just mm -hmm. because they're some of my favorites that don't get talked about a lot. And then there's a couple that I try to dig deep. Like I went on my letterbox yeah. <laughs> account and just kind of found some movies that are like, I really like that are super obscure or just like not even that obscure, but just like may, maybe like, in the year they came out just didn't get talked about a lot but like this is what i've been looking forward to doing every day of this uh quarantine so it's just happy that i get to do it on the radio okay and, and susan how about you how did you what, did you have a process for coming up with these movies my process was first to think oh god i can't remember that many movies and then i had to this kind of came to me over a period of days um, where I was just trying to think about movies that I'd watched, uh, just sort of uh, looking at people's lists that they'd made over time to just kind of jog my memory. And it's funny because I would see one movie on a list that I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but it would remind me of something else. Right. So I'd 
I would keep putting movies on there just based on, oh, yeah, that I know that actor was in this or just for some reason that movie reminds me of this. So it was actually a really fun process because now I've got a whole list of movies that I really need to see again because I, I love them. Right. Well, I should say, Susan, and I think this sort of speaks to uh, some of Sean's criteria, too, that between the two of us, we wound up with three Terry Gilliam movies. Um, and, <laughs> and I think that says something about the status of Terry Gilliam movies, which is that, you know, either you're willing to kind of take the plunge with him and go where he's going. You had Time Bandits and 12 Monkeys. I, did. I had The Fisher King, which I sometimes say is my favorite movie ever. Um, so what we're going to do is, here's, a, here's the process. Okay, so Sean and I are going to talk about a movie. Susan and I are going to talk a movie about a movie. And then Sean and Susan are going to tell you about a couple of the other ones. I mean, there were each, one of, each of them had ones on their list movies that I just basically never even heard of. Um, so we want to know a little bit more about those. So the first movie that, so Sean and I are going to talk briefly about a movie called Brick. It was released in 2005. It was directed by Ryan Johnson, who's, it was his first real movie. He's gone on to great things and he directs Star Wars movies now and stuff like that. So uh, he's a big deal. Uh, and, and Knives Out, which we discussed here on The Nose. Um, this is an L.A film noir movie with every possible trope and motif you would associate with L.A. film noir. The one difference being everybody in it is a high school student. None of this is played for any obvious laughs. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays this kind of Robert Mitchum-style hard-boiled detective who just happens to be a high school student looking into his classmates. So we're going to hear a little scene here where he confronts some stoners who are leaning up against a wall. He's trying to find M, uh, his erstwhile girlfriend. So here's Joseph Gordon-Levitt talking to the stoners. Kara told me you know where M's at. Uh-huh. And why are you looking for M? She asked for my help. Uh-huh. Well, listen, man, I got plenty on my plate without dealing with some jilted X. It's not about that. Well, whatever it's about, X smarter than you look and drop it. Where's she at? You better get while it's good. Heal it now, dig. Don't let me if you want, Hashhead. I got all five senses and I slept last night. That puts me six up on the lot of you. It's easy, bro. Where's Em? She's with me. She was tight when she called you, man. Came to and freak. Told me to shake you if you came by. Said you only make things worse. Deal with whatever this ain't about and drop it. Tell Emma I want to see her. Tell her if she wants my help or not. It's her business. But I want to hear it straight from she her. Today, me. she knows where I eat lunch. And stay out, man. All right, I saw this movie uh, with my son, Joey. I turned to him at the end. And I said, that's like a perfect movie. That's like so perfect. So, uh, Sean, tell us what you like about it. I mean, like, uh, it's just, it's, it is perfect, uh, first of all. Like, it's just the... I love anachronisms. So like anytime people are speaking in dialogue that they wouldn't be speaking in like during that time period, I, I'm in love with it. I I'm a I used to be a huge fan of Joseph Gordon Levin. He hasn't really done much lately that I've been a huge fan of. But I just love like he he hits Ryan Johnson hits all the like you said, all the beats and like tropes of of like noir pictures in such a way and it like he never plays it for laughs which i mean that's the perfect way to, to do it you could just make it a, a a spoof of uh noir movies and just put it in high school but the fact that he plays it straight 100 percent of the way through 
and it works is just like it's just that, that movie like you said it's just it's so great i love that movie so much yeah i just uh, i couldn't find a thing to object <sighs> to uh, about this movie and and yeah it really is the the way that it is so committed to being a kind of raymond chandler style detective story uh, and that there's nothing intrinsically funny or winked at about the fact that they're all in high school is just uh, just a huge selling point. All right. So, Susan, uh, you and I both liked a David O. Russell movie. Uh, it's from 1999. It's kind of near the sort of turning point of David O. Russell's career. He'd made a series of kind of indie movies. This is, I think, a little bit in that category, even though it has a big star like uh, George Clooney. Uh, it's called Three Kings. It takes place at the end of the Persian Gulf War. That would be Bush 41's war. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a heist movie. It's kind of an anti-war movie. It's kind of a comedy. Uh, it's about a bunch of things. So you're going to hear Clooney as Archie Gates, Ice Cube as Chief Elgin, uh, Mark Wahlberg as Troy, and Spike Jones as Conrad Vig. They are kind of the quartet uh, at the heart of this movie. What do you see here? Bunkers, sir. What are in those bunkers? Stuff they stole from Kuwait. Bull****. I'm talking about millions in Kuwaiti bullion. You mean them little cubes you put in hot water to make soup? No, not the little cubes you put in hot water to make soup. Gold bricks, Conrad. Saddam stole it from the sheiks. I have no problem stealing it from Saddam. My guess is he's divided these bricks into several different stashes. Just one of these stashes would be easy for us to take from his deserting army, and that would be enough to get us out of our day jobs. Unless, of course, you reserve us are in love with your day jobs. I don't really have a day job, sir. Just us and the Humvee up out of Euphrates River Valley. Where they put Moses in the basket. Egypt. <laughs> we three kings be stealing the gold. Damn. My friends all drive Porsches. I must make a man. Hey, just shut up, okay? Are you done singing? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, Spike Jones uh, turns out to have some uh, pretty good comic chops in this movie. All right, Susan, uh, take it away. Yeah, I loved this movie when I, I saw it when it first came out in the theater. Uh, it was such a good antidote to. Um, the kind of feeling that everybody had about Desert Storm back in the early 90s, that it was sort of a big patriotic, we're going we're gonna to get our mojo back from Vietnam. And they actually addressed that in the movie a whole bunch. Um, and it was, it's also just a, a great sort of surreal movie. It's, it's, the, the, the cinematography is so good. Uh, Clooney, of course, is great. I'll, I'll watch Clooney in anything. He's like the last leading man. I'll, I, don't, I don't care what he plays. He's always going to be great. Uh, but the characters are fantastic. The story is is so wild and unbelievable, but also really fun. But it also does interrogate all of these questions about that war that nobody really wanted to talk about, and just about war in general. Like there's that scene uh, where one of them is getting interrogated, um, and the interrogator, who is a, a bad guy, obviously is interrogating the guy, but uh, uh, torturing him. But he's also like, well, you guys dropped a bomb on my house and, and you killed my kid. Um, and what's up with that? So there's it's just all these great moments in this movie. I would watch this movie again and again. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it and thinking about how well in 1999 and 2000, it kind of set up some of the discontent in the Middle East that Americans mm. had had sealed themselves off from that really kind of, you know, answered some of the questions about why 9-11 was happening. And that scene in particular where that man is and he there's a kind of flashback. You you see uh, the, the death of his family members uh, and you understand maybe how we are, were regarded by a lot of people over there. 
there. I, I agree. It had it, it was very funny and very exciting, but it had some very serious points. And just a terrific cast, too. I mean, all those people were good. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to do one more back and forth, and then we're going to go to their lists. You know, you, you, I sort of always wonder what movies are obscure and which ones are not obscure and which ones are in kind of a middle ground. And there's a lot of movies that I've watched so many times that I take so for granted. I don't think of them as obscure movies. So I have no idea, I'm going to be honest with you, whether Gross Point Blank is an obscure movie or not. It stars uh, John Cusack uh, as, and, and Minnie Driver. John Cusack is uh, a guy coming back for a um, very much dreaded and unwanted high school reunion. I believe it's his 10th. Uh, but what he's been doing... Uh, in uh, in the intervening period is working as a very, very high-level paid assassin. Uh, there's some great uh, little character roles in here. Dan Aykroyd plays one of his rivals. And Alan Arkin, in a just superb Alan Arkin turn, uh, plays his psychotherapist who has discovered all too late what Martin Blank actually does for a living. So here's a little conversation between uh, Cusack and Arkin as uh, th- uh, analyst and analysand. I got invited to my 10-year high school reunion. I'm conflicted. I mean, I don't know if I really want to go. It's in Detroit, you know, and I grew up there, but I just honestly don't know what I have in common with those people anymore. You know, with anyone, really. I mean, they'll all have husbands and wives and children and houses and dogs, and, you know, they'll have made themselves a part of something, and they can talk about what they do, and what am I going to say? I killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? I'm just thinking it'll be depressing. It'll be depressing. Shouldn't you be taking notes or something? I'm not taking notes, Martin, because I'm not your doctor. Please don't start with that stuff again. Martin, I'm emotionally involved with you. How are you emotionally involved with me? I'm afraid of you. You're afraid of me. And that constitutes an emotional involvement. On top of that, if you've committed a crime or if you're thinking about committing a crime, I have to tell the authorities. I know the law, okay? But I don't want to be withholding. I'm very serious about this process. And I know where you live. Oh, and I see... That wasn't a nice thing to say. That wasn't designed to make me feel good. This is all set against a 1980s music uh, soundtrack, kind of an all-star 80s high school favorites uh, soundtrack. So, Sean, uh, give me your take. This movie is such a, like, like, we just forgot about John Cusack as, like, an actor. Like, he's so good at playing this kind of, like, disinterested, disaffected uh, hitman, but it's the movie's played, like, it gets pretty dark at a lot of points, but it's played so, like, absurdly and so, like, light the, the entire time. It's so funny. Like, I, I think, I don't think too many other actors could have could nailed it as hard as he does. And one of the things I, I've, I've realized very recently was, like, this this movie shares a lot of qualities with uh, Barry on HBO, Bill yes. Hader's show, which I also love. Um, and... It, I, I never even put those two things together, but like, like, and like you said before, there's so many great little uh, small roles. Like Dan Aykroyd plays a great role. Alan Arkin's great. Minnie Driver is pretty, pretty good. And then like Joan Cusack is, I don't know. It's just, it's just a really fun type of movie. They don't really make it anymore. Like this, I think Barry identifies how this type of movie would just be an HBO show now, or like a 10, you know, 10 episode miniseries. You wouldn't put it in theaters, but it, it was so good. Yeah, I, I would agree that this particular kind of thing that, and it has Barry's quality also of 
at simultaneous moments, there are very pedestrian conversations going on and horrible acts of violence being committed. There's sort of a scene at the end where he's kind of trying to talk through his relationship with Minnie Driver while having this protracted, incredibly violent gunfight with Dan Aykroyd. And he's just sort of calling over his shoulder, talking about mistakes he thinks he made in the relationship. And uh, there is that that great juxtaposition. All right. So I want to talk to you guys about your list, Susan. I'm going to go over to you. Uh, I'll, I'll read your list for the benefit of... Of people uh, who want to know all of them. Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, it's been from 57. Contact, uh, that's the alien movie. Dark City, uh, The Death of Stalin, which we were just talking about with Frank Rich on Monday on the show. Uh, Heather's Little Big Man. Uh, Lupin the Third, The Castle, castle of Cagliarostro. I, I'm really bad about Japanese movies. I never know anything about them. Uh, Men with Guns, uh, that's a John Sayles movie. Uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Paul, Princess Mononoke, okay, I do know that one, The Shadow, The Sword and the Stone, Time Bandits, Twelve Monkeys, uh, UHF. So, I don't know, pick one or two of those, Susan, and just talk us through them. Oh, geez, it's hard to pick one, but let's see. Um, I do love The Death of Stalin. I know if you guys just talked about that, I won't talk about it too, too much. But if you've ever wanted to see something that's both funny and horrifying and deeply compelling, that's also kind of historical. Well, That's also, the, the context in which, which we talked about it on Monday, and maybe this will add to your enjoyment of it, is there's a way in which the people who are around Stalin at the beginning, uh, Khrushchev and all these other apparatchiks, who are played by you know actors like Steve Buscemi, yeah. they kind of resemble the position in which you see Drs. Fauci and Burks and some of the other Trump advisors at these kind of stand-up things where if they say the wrong thing, they can be purged. So they're constantly sort of saying things uh, in the movie and then wondering whether they should have said that or not and whether just the slightest slip of the tongue could lead to their death. It's a little bit analogous uh, analogous to what we see today. It kind of is. And this is another movie that has just like this all-star cast of people. Uh, there's so many there's so many good actors in it playing parts. Um, another one that I thought was, uh, was excellent in that way is A Man for All Seasons. Um, uh, again, that's, that's a 1960s movie uh, that's about... Uh, Sir Thomas More and in the court of Henry VIII and his resistance to the marriage of uh, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and the creation of the Church of England. Uh, it portrays More as being a saintly figure uh, and uh, someone who is standing up for his principles. Um, and it is it's just this great movie that has beautiful cinematography, another all-star cast, like Orson Welles plays Cardinal Wolsey. Uh, my friend remarked one time that he, they, they made him look like a tomato with a hat in it. It's, it's, uh, but there's also just so many other great actors in there. The guy that plays Thomas Cromwell eventually, you, you'd know him if you ever watched uh, Rumpole of the Bailey. Yes, Leo uh, McCurran. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I cannot see that movie without thinking him as, of being, as being Rumpole. Uh, John Hurt is in it. Uh, there's, there's a ton of great actors in it. And the, the story and the questions that it asks, it's just, it really is almost a perfect movie for me. It's also uh, Robert Shaw, uh, he of Jaws fame, yep. and Henry VIII. And, that, you know, the, the thing about this is movie, and I just watched it a couple of weeks ago, uh, mm. re-watched it, is it, it bumps up so much against the, the uh, sensibilities of Wolf Hall, uh, in which... Uh, 
in, in which Moore is just conceived very differently as this murderous, uh, torturing uh, fanatic, basically, uh, kind of a deadpan fanatic. So, but and, and historians kind of are back and forth on this too, like how you really should think about this guy. But it, it, it if you could watch a little bit of Wolf Hall and get to uh, compare Damien Lewis's Henry VIII with Robert Shaw's Henry VIII, they're both just really, really terrific. Hey, you know, you should say something. There's one director, Miyazaki, who's there. He, he's got three movies on your list. Maybe you should say something about him anyway. Yeah, so I've got um, I've got Princess Mononoke and I've got Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind on there. Um, of course, some of my other favorite movies like uh, uh, My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away, which I thought were too high profile maybe for this list, but I don't know. I don't know uh, what the what the status of those ones is. Um, anything that Miyazaki does, a uh, famous Japanese director of animation, is just going to be gorgeous and fun and uh, compelling and and this is like the the few things that one of the few movies that come from Japan where you really should watch the dubbed version, the American dubbed version, because they often get high profile actors and yes. actresses to play the parts in them. Uh, like just one that pops into my head is that uh, Gillian Anderson played the wolf in Princess Mononoke. Um, and Princess Mononoke is, is one of my favorites because it's like this tale of environmentalism. Um, it's also a tale of uh, belonging. Uh, and the, char- the characters are very complex. Like there's this woman that runs this camp. Uh, they're mining things out of the ground and that's hurting the forest. But she also conceives of her town as like this wonderful independent place. So there's this sort of back and forth uh, between that. Uh, Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, is another environmental tale. You often see these themes pop up in, in Miyazaki's movies. This is one of the first ones that he did from the 1980s. Um, and again, it's about a world that has been uh, so changed by a, a massive sort of climate catastrophe where the forests and everything else are poison. And there's only a few places humans can live. It's about the adventures of this girl named Nausicaa uh, during that time. Uh, both great movies. Um, I, I just recommend anything Miyazaki does, but if you haven't heard of these two, these are ones you should check out. I, I can co-endorse The Princess Mononoke, and my son can too. It was a big movie for him growing up. All right, so uh, Sean, over to your list. Broadcast news. A Cult is My Passport, another Japanese movie. Hard Eight, His Girl Friday, Hollywood Shuffle, If Beale Street Could Talk, uh, Inside Man, uh, Layer Cake, uh, MacGruber, Miller's Crossing, Paths of Glory, Road to Perdition, Short Term 12. I'd forgotten about Short Term 12. It was so great. Uh, and Stop Making Sense. So um, I think he, I think uh, Pants doesn't want us to talk about Stop Making Sense till the end of the segment. But pick a few others from your list, uh, Sean, and just talk us through. Okay. Um, before I do, I just want to mention uh, from Susan's list, the Castle Cagliostro, the other uh, Miyazaki film on her list, one of my favorite movies, and I'm very upset that I didn't add it to my list because I've been recommending that movie to everyone lately. So good, so stylish, and like it's one of the, it's just so great. But anyway, back to my list. Inside Man, uh, Spike Lee, I think that was 2006. Yes. Uh, Denzel Washington is um, is a as a detective investigating um basically a, a bank robbery is happening and uh he's been sent there to kind of negotiate and kind of investigate it and it ends up being like a a, a much more deep thing than a bank robbery happening you don't realize it but to me it, it's just a, one of the forgotten spike lee movies and one of the forgotten denzel washington performances is probably my favorite denzel washington performance he's so charming and cool uh, and he, and it, I mean, it's, it's a, it is a great cast. He has a great chemistry with um, Clive Owen in that movie. Uh, Jodie Foster's in it. Um, Christopher Plummer's in it. Um, 
Chiwetel Ejiofor plays his partner in the movie. Uh, Willem Dafoe. Like, it's, it's just a really great cast. It's a really smart movie. Um, it's kind of just got lost uh, in the 2000s, but as uh, among Spike Lee's later works, I think it's one of his best. Um, Short Term 12, like, uh, is, is, is a Daniel, Dustin Daniel Cretton uh, de- debut feature. It stars Brie Larson. And I mean, it's just, it's pretty much ends up being like an all-star cast uh, later on down the road. Like so many uh, great uh, actors came out of that movie. Like Brie, Lar- Brie Larson's in it. Then we got Rami Malek, uh, who went on to be in um, Bohemian Rhapsody and um, uh, Mr. Robot. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield, who, that was his kind of his first role. And he ended up being on Atlanta and so many movies. Stephanie Beatriz, who's in um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like, it's just a really great independent movie about, like, this uh, short-term 12 is a, is a group home for troubled teenagers. And Brie Larson is kind of, like, the, the the main supervisor. And it just tells the story of, like, you know, the character, um, you know, the people in this, the bonds that the the people who run the, the home have with the, the kids in there. It's a really great movie. Yeah, I, I saw this movie at that great movie theater on Houston Street, the Sunshine Landmark or whatever it's called, and uh, I had no idea what it was going in. I don't think I'd ever seen Brie Larson before. So she was a revelation. It was a revelation. It's a terrific movie. I I didn't think of it when I was trying to make my list, so a great choice. Yeah, uh, pick uh, at least one more here before we, we transition. If I had Contact. One... Oh. Contact. There's a great request for contact. Oh, uh, so, yeah, so... so we'll have Susan do contact. We'll have Sean do one more of his. How about that? Okay, that sounds good. Okay. Uh, Contact, my very, fav- my very favorite movie of all time, um, Jodie Foster, and it's based on the uh, the novel um, about first contact with aliens. I'll just say, if you haven't seen it, it's a real treat, um, especially for like the the random scenes of Bill Clinton that are in there um, that they splice in. But it's it's just a fantastic movie. There's a um, just sort of the the sensibility of it, and I'm sure that you've probably seen quotes from it here and there, but I, I won't spoil any of them. It's just it's good. Go out, go see it. All right, uh, particularly if you enjoy uh, weird performances by Matthew McConaughey. Um, oh yes. So uh, so yeah, Sean, pick one more of yours too. Um, if I, I guess if I was going to do one more, I would have to do broadcast news. Uh, ah. James L. Brooks uh, movie is it 1987, 86 yep. or something? 87. Um, it's Holly Hunter, William Hurt, Albert Brooks. It's so charming. It's so sweet and funny. Um, Albert Brooks plays like I mean, Holly Hunter is just the most like attractive woman. Like as like not even just like um, facially and physically, but it's like as a person, she's just so attractive and like she plays this like you know for uh, um, you know broadcast news. Um, and uh, William Hurt plays a new anchor man who's just a he's like he's very telegenic, but he's like, he's had no experience and he's pretty much a dullard. Um, and he gets, you know, an opportunity to be on the news when Albert Brooks, who's worked at the, the news station for so long, has always wanted that position. And it's also been really attracted to Holly Hunter's character for so long. And it just, it's kind of like a, a triangle between them three. And it's like, I don't know, it's like the prototypical, like not prototypical, uh, I guess any hell is prototypical romantic comedy. But this is like, I don't know, it's just perfect, perfect movie. 
Right. It, it really is terrific. It's uh, written and uh, directed by James Brooks, who's just a master of dialogue. And for me, there are maybe, you know, really 15 or 20 pieces of dialogue sprinkled throughout this movie uh, that uh, have stayed with me. It also, by the way, has Joan Cusack in it uh, yeah. and uh, Jack Nicholson uh, and in, in kind of a little cameo. But for example, for that Holly Hunter role, there's one that sticks in my mind. There's a moment where one of the net, network execs turns to her because she is this brilliant and high functioning news producer. And he says, it must be just so great to be the smartest person in the world uh, and the smartest person in the room, the one with the right answer all the time. And she twists her face into this contortion of agony. And she goes, no, it's horrible. <laughs> you know immediately what she means by that. Uh, all right. So great list by you guys. Um, people wrote in uh, who people who read my newsletter wrote in with some suggestions. I guess I probably also uh, should uh, speed uh, as quickly as possible uh, through my own list. The Fisher King, A Knight's Tale with Heath, Heath Ledger, which I really regard as another very nearly perfect movie. Uh, the End of the Tour from 2015. Uh, you'll either like it or you'll hate it, but it's uh, about David Foster Wallace uh, on a book tour. Sneakers, uh, which is this kind of all-star 1992 uh, espionage, sort of commercial espionage uh, movie with Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier and Mary McDonnell, who was also in Passion Fish that year, which is a terrific movie. Any John Sayles movie is a pretty good bet. Baby, It's You from 1983, if you want to go back, but also Eight Men Out, Secret of Rowan Inish. Uh, and with Secret of Rowan Inish in mind, Local Hero, which is not a John Sayles movie, but a great, uh, also very low-key Scotland-based movie with Peter Riegert. The Adventures of Buckaroo Bob Banzai across the eighth dimension. I'm not even going to try to describe it. Uh, you'll either. It, it very much is, I think, the basis for movies like Galaxy Quest, anyway, or, or, or an inspiration. Fabulous Baker Boys and The Fisher King, two great uh, Jeff Bridges movies. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I had to pick one Wes Anderson movie. This is probably the one you are least likely to have watched. Uh, and it is a great movie. All Wes Anderson movies are comedies about depression. And so this one is a comedy about depression. Uh, and Point Break, the original one, Patrick Swayze and Keanu, directed by Catherine Bigelow. If you get kids in the house and they haven't seen Muppet Treasure Island, it's actually a very good overlooked um, uh, Muppet movie. All right. So oh, I'll also just quickly read uh, some of the readers of the newsletter. So the original Thomas Crown Affair, which is kind of peak Faye Dunaway. Uh, and uh, also, of course, uh, Steve McQueen. Uh, the man who would be king, Prometheus. I, I feel Prometheus feels like Susan, a movie that you might have nominated uh, with Charlize Theron, Idris Elba. Uh, how did that one not make your list? I have not seen it. That's, that's how. how. That's how. Uh, yeah. The man, the man who would be king, with uh, Michael Caine and Sean Connery. Nobody's fool with Paul Newman. Um, small uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman thing. The whole Hunt for the Wilder People uh, and Youth. Um, and which youth stars uh, Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel. I think com producer Carmen Baskoff recommended that one as well as The Hunt for the Wilder People and or Boy. Those are both by Taika Waititi, uh, who we saw recently in Jojo Rabbit. All right. So those are some things that came in from from outside. There's more, but we're running short of time. I'm going to go to a break here. We'll be back with Susan and Sean after this. All right, we are back. We are back. Uh, we've been talking about movies that, that you um, 
you know, if you're sort of looking around for something else to, uh, to watch, uh, we've been through a bunch of them. We'll, uh, we'll uh, put up all the lists uh, on the show page for this, wnpr.org slash Colin. Uh, meanwhile, with us uh, are uh, Susan Bigelow, who, by the way, uh, is also going to be uh, on the wheelhouse on Wednesday. So she's doing all kinds of double duty for us right now. Librarian, columnist for CT News Junkie, science fiction and fantasy novelist, Sean Murray, stand-up comedian and writer. Um, Sean, I'm going to have you kind of guide us through this next segment. Uh, we were encouraged to watch uh, a, um, a stand-up special. Oh, it's not a stand-up special because I'm not even sure he's standing up most of the time, uh, but it's by a stand-up comedian, Ted Alexandro. Uh, it's a stay-at-home comedy special that's free on YouTube. We liked that about it. Uh, and uh, maybe, Sean, you can just sort of contextualize this a little bit. I never even heard of Ted Alexandro, so you get to start uh, there for me. So Ted Alexandro, uh, I've been doing comedy 30 years now, the, uh, New York comic, um, does a lot of stuff at the Comedy Cellar. He opened for uh, He Who Must Not Be Named, uh, Louis C.K., a number of times in the past. Uh, he's just a very respected New York comic. Um, great live performer, great physical performer. And, he, you know, he puts out the, he put out this, uh, you know, special on his, on YouTube, which is, I guess, just a combination of just, um, just edited together footage of uh, just Instagram live videos he's been doing. And it's just, you know, that's like 47 minutes of him just kind of riffing on, uh, you know, coronavirus quarantine topics. And uh, it's it's definitely a special. I'll give you give it that much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I want to come back to this because I know that you do have some real respect for work of his that you've seen. Let's hear a little bit of, of this. Uh, he's doing exactly what Sean just said he would be doing. He's riffing on coronavirus. How many of you suspect you you might have the coronavirus right now? How many of you in the last week have said, you know what, I think, I think I've got it? How many of you have said that? I've said it like four times a day. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I've contracted a virus. <clears throat> I constantly go through these feelings where I'm convinced, yeah, you know, I guess I, I guess I have it. It's been a good run. And then like, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, that was, I guess I was just belching. Wash your hands. Have you been washing? What song do you sing? I sing Hey Jude. My hands, I think my hands have aged about 20 years during the pandemic because I've washed them more times in the last three weeks than I have in the entirety of my 51 years. My hands, uh, my hands have aged into the, the danger demographic, right? Isn't it like 70 and over? I've got the hands of a 70 year old now. So now my hands are, my hands are at risk of contracting the virus before I do. So Susan, uh, obviously he doesn't have an audience. He doesn't have anybody laughing. There's this kind of uh, like feathers on an updraft. There are all these sort of Instagram comments uh, flying by because, as Sean said, these are sort of edited clips from uh, from Instagram. Uh, at times you become a little bit more interested in what the Instagram people might be saying than what Ted mm. is saying. But uh, just give me some of your reactions. Well, uh, I actually sort of turned to other things and listened to it for a little while. Uh, He's he's a very he's got a very intense face. 
Um, <laughs> that is that is the way I will put it. Uh, so every once in a while, I was like, oh, this is a little uncomfortable. Uh, it might just sort of be like the mountain man beard thing he's got going on. He's also just got like a sort of very intense look in his eye. Uh, and, you know, that's I'm sure that that really helps is when he's doing a live show. Uh, but this didn't really work for me. I thought some of it was relatable. I, I thought a lot of it was relatable. I thought a lot of it was not necessarily funny, but it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, as a sort of special, as something that has been put together, it, it didn't really hang together for me. Um, and sometimes I felt like I really need to have this be over now so I can go and do something else. Um, because it, it kind of dragged as well. And I think that this is a problem that people who are used to a live audience actually have a lot is that you sort of you say a joke and then you kind of wait for it to hit the audience and the audience reaction will feed what you do next. Um, but because there's no audience, he was sort of making these pauses as if pausing for laughter. And it's just like, oh, that just makes things drag. Uh, and a lot of a lot of late night people actually have this problem too, like Colbert, like pauses for laughter. Uh, but, you know, one person who does not have that problem is John Oliver who's so rapid fire with his jokes. He actually is doing really, I think his show is better from home than it is, uh, than it actually is uh, with the audience in front of it. But back to the special, the special was okay. Um, I don't know. I necessarily seek this guy out again to watch it. it I think it's going to be a, an interesting historical document of kind of what everyone was kind of thinking about during this time. But other than that, it's, it's kind of missable. Yeah, no, Sean, I want you to say a little bit more about Ted. But before we do that, I think Susan's making an interesting point. Look, being an old guy, I grew up listening to comedy albums, so I couldn't see anybody at all. Sometimes they had audiences, sometimes they didn't. My recollection is that some of the great, speaking of he who cannot be named, Bill Cosby albums didn't have audiences. Some did, but, you know, it didn't matter, you know, but. And then I've watched a lot of stand-up specials, and I've watched people do stand-up. I've watched you do stand-up, Sean. But it's not like your big old face is, like, right in front of my face the entire time, you know? You can sort of look at you walking around the stage and, and doing whatever. I mean, nobody has a stand-up special where just their face is on the screen. So this is this may be a little bit of the problem here, is that it's just too much Ted and his, you know, his facial features. Yeah, well, you know, this, you know, part of it is just like, you know, like you said, he's just speaking directly into the camera. Um, and like, like you said, like if, if you like if Susan said, like if your mileage may vary on it, if you want to look into his face for very long, some people probably don't. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even want to listen to his face for very long either. But I would I'd say I think another issue with the the the, the special, quote unquote, is that it, I, I feel like it's it's not prepared jokes. You know what I mean? Like he, right. he's, he's riffing. For the most part, and, and it is, there are a number of comics who've done specials like that, where it's just crowd work or whatever. But there is no crowd to act up off of, and even like like the Bill Cosby specials uh, that you mentioned, where he may not have an audience, is like I'm sure he tried those jokes out in front of audiences. Oh yeah, before you know, before he, he decided to record the special. And I think that's one of the issues with this is that it's just kind of like just ideas about what's going on right now, and like like Susan said, it's just like some of it is like um, yeah, I relate to that for sure. But that's I think that's a problem with a lot of people who are attempting to do stuff like this right now is that it's just all like current event stuff. And it's all like, yeah, I can relate to that, but it's not necessarily funny. And it's not like he got a chance. He didn't get a chance to work this out in front of audiences. So it's just, it's just, if the idea is funny, we'll just kind of hear like even, you know, cause a lot of jokes you hear on specials that are funny probably weren't funny when they first were told, but they kind of worked it out. He hasn't worked any of this out. And it's kind of like, uh, yeah, sure. I don't know. I guess I can watch 47 minutes of this. 
Right. I, there, you know, uh, Mike Birbiglia is doing a similar thing right now uh, on Instagram where he has other comedians come on and you watch them trying out jokes that they're not they, they by their own admission. They don't this they're, they don't have the beats yet. They don't know wh- what the joke really is. And I found that more fun. It's a little bit more short and there are two faces to look at. And so you'll hear somebody like Roy, Roy Wood does a thing where he. He, he tries out kind of a set of jokes about why there are no black preppers, uh, you know, and he doesn't quite have it. But he you can just see that three months from now and maybe with a chance to do some stuff with audiences, he's going to have a pretty funny rip on why there are no black preppers. Uh, and and similarly, similarly, John Mulaney is you know doing stuff like this. I thought here. One thing that I would say as a rule for comedians is even though nothing is ever really off limits, if you're going to make an Anne Frank joke, you probably ought to know what joke it is you want to make. You know, you don't want to just <laughs> yes. spitball. You don't fumble want to just, into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, yeah. Want to, you don't yeah. want to fumble through your Anne Frank joke. I thought he was on an interesting track where he was talking about his baby and talking about at one point he goes, it's weird to get annoyed at a baby, which is a great setup for something. But he doesn't quite know where to go with those ideas. But, Sean, you did say that you've seen him be really terrific. Yeah. Um, can, can I just say, before going yeah. into that, just like I also enjoy the Berbiglia thing. Yeah. He's doing other comics. And I think part of that is the banter between the two comics. Because sometimes yeah. it'll be a joke that's really not that funny. And like you kind of see the response in the other comedian. That's kind of funny. And also, <laughs> they'll also kind of give each other a laugh that, not, isn't necessarily deserved, but they're yeah. like, you know, I want to encourage you because you're my friend, so I'll kind of laugh at that. Whereas with Ted, it's just like he, you just have to assume that he just has to assume that people are thinking what he's saying is funny and power through. But getting on to Ted Alexandro, it's he's an interesting comic because I remember he, a few years ago when Joker Joker's Wild, the comedy club in New Haven, was still open, he came down to to the Joker's and he put on I'll probably say top ten greatest like stand up performances that I've seen live. He was, he's probably, yeah, probably top five or 10. It was incredible. And then I was talking to, um, a, he's like so physical, but he's like so intense and he, he just knows his material inside and out. And it, it's, it's like, it's, he's like a dancer on stage in terms of like the grace of how he moves or whatever. I was talking to a comic on stage and I was like, I saw his special recently and I didn't really like it. He's like, you know, that's the same material, right? And I was like, what? He's like, he had put in an album probably six months before and it was the exact same material that he did in that album and I didn't remember any of it because I didn't really like the special he did it on stage at Joker's Wild and it was incredible to me so I think part of it is just like him in front of an audience him live might just add something to his his act that you're not going to get through Instagram live well yeah I mean Susan a lot of comedians use their whole bodies I mean Chris Rock Mm -hmm. on stage prowling around you know and and also you know he uses a lot of facial expressions but they're not quite you know and they're not crowding into our onto our desk or into our, our our living room seinfeld you know once again often you don't think of him as a physical comedian but uh like that the whole thing he does about the difference between winning and losing at the olympics and he just slightly moves his nose um you know there's there's a way in which if you can't use your whole body you got a problem that's true um and it's just the lack of any audience feedback, I want to talk about that just for a second. It really does make a huge difference, I think, especially for somebody who's used to being kind of a physical performer, who's used to being on stage and being able to uh, to see in real time, what's the audience getting? How is this landing? Uh, and it's just feeding off of that energy. You know, if you've ever been on stage and you really love being on stage, um, just feeding off the energy of a crowd will make what you do like that much better. Uh, and he's, he's clearly missing that. Um, 
yeah. Uh, what was the question again? <laughs> I don't. It doesn't really matter because we're out of time anyway. So oh, well, okay. we're, we're going to go to a break here. When we come back, we are going to talk uh, about some recommendations. I think the panelists are allowed to have as their recommendations movies from their list that they didn't get to talk about yet, or something else. It's your your call. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat. Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Okay, I got to say thanks to Kat. Uh, Kat Pastor uh, is in the studio right now, making it possible uh, for us to do what we do. I, I'm at my house, uh, Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this episode, is at his house, uh, and Kat is holding it all together. So thanks so much uh, to her for that. Uh, and thanks to all the people behind the scenes who make all this possible as well. I've thanked them before. Maybe you're getting to know their names. So I won't say them again. Uh, we've got uh, some new shows coming up next week. Uh, I guess I don't really have time to promote to those. So let's just go back to our panelists, Sean Murray and Susan Bigelow, and get some recommendations. As I said, you guys can either recommend movies that you didn't get to talk about yet or uh, do something else with your time. Uh, Sean, what do you want to do? I think I'm going to recommend one of the movies that I didn't get to talk about yet because I guess I was going to bring it up in the first segment, but I didn't. Um, Stop Making Sense. Uh, Jonathan Demme uh, is a, is a um, you know, documentary uh, film about uh, music documentary about uh, the Talking Heads on their uh, tour. I think it was 1987. I, but um, I think it's just one of the purest movies ever made. Like, if if you like, I like the Talking Heads going into watching that movie. I love them on the way coming out. Like, I don't know how you could watch that movie and just not be totally in love with David Byrne. Like, just find him just the most interesting, amazing person on on the world. In, in the world, he's just... Like it's just it's just pure movement and joy and music. Like um, my good friend Dan Cowart, he's another stand-up comedian. We used to always say that he wishes whenever he told jokes that people just got started up and got up and started dancing because like that's just like what you want to see. And it's like that's what stop making sense. What makes you want to do? You just want to get up and just dance along with the movie because it's just so joyous and fun. It's just like you just wish you could just be. Got, got, got a chance to see the Talking Heads on tour during that era. All right. So uh, Stop Making Sense, the Jonathan Demme film. Uh, it's a concert film of the Talking Heads. Uh, Susan Bigelow, how about you? I got something new. Um, I've got uh, the show, the HBO show, Avenue 5. Um, <laughs> and this is a this show hasn't hasn't made a much of a splash yet, which I, I, I think is a real shame because it is this darkly darkly funny show about um a luxury space liner that gets not kind of not stranded but they get knocked off course and they're going to be years and years getting home uh and the this it stars hugh laurie is playing the captain um and it's just this this sort of ship of fools kind of everybody on the ship is kind of an idiot except maybe one or two people uh and the whole situation is so bizarre and uh it's it's also really very uh, very apt for our times. Uh, there's just one scene uh, where uh, the the airlock scene where they mm-hmm. are where all these these passengers these rich sort of spoiled awful people uh, get it into their head. There's like this conspiracy theory that it's not real that the ship isn't real and uh, that they could just leave. 
uh, and walk out and they'll be in the, the green room and they'll be able to go home. And so they toss themselves out the airlock. And it, it, this actually happens a couple of different times. Uh, like the, that what they watch people, the people who are not in the airlock, watch the ones in the airlock, just go out into space and die. And, um, and that, another two waves of them go in one after the other saying, no, that was just visual effects. It can't be real. Uh, so it just something, a great commentary on how conspiracy theory thinking works. Uh, but the entire series is very good and it is coming back for a second season, uh, at some point. So well worth the watch. Yeah. You might have to wait a while for that. So, um, it, it, it is, I'll just say that you'll, it'll either remind you too much of the situation that you're actually in right now, or it'll be the perfect uh, way to laugh at the situation that you're in right now. And that's true on, on many different levels. I think what I'm going to recommend for those of you who really want to geek out about movies, pick a director and just go through and yeah, obviously you can't get everything or maybe you don't feel like paying three ninety nine for something. But you know, if you picked say Jonathan Demi, who Sean just mentioned and watched Melvin and Howard, which is a terrific movie uh, with Jason Robards and Paul Lamette, Swing Shift, Something Wild, Married to the Mob. And then these are all kind of quirky comedies. And then suddenly Philadelphia, a dead serious movie, uh, Rachel getting married, uh, stop making sense. Do something. You can do the same thing with Wes Anderson. I mean, some people can't stand Wes Anderson. I happen to be a big fan. But you start with Bottle Rocket, his breakout film, and they're all basically um, – sort of movies about depressed people, but they're sort of like the slapstick equivalent of depression. Uh, so, uh, and you can do the same thing. I mentioned John Sayles. Uh, he's a terrific, a passion fish, Madawan, uh, Secaucus 7, um, Men with Guns. That was one of Susan's uh, movies. Uh, so to, like, do a whole shit, uh, John Sayles things, Sayles thing. Or David O. Russell. You can start at the beginning with Spanking the Monkey uh, and go forward and watch as many of them as you possibly can. He's now become kind of a big budget director uh, now that he's working with Jennifer Lawrence on movies like American Hustle uh, and uh, The Silver Linings Playbook. But yeah, pick a director and just sort of geek out uh, on that director. All right, we have to go. Uh, and Grayson is going to take us out here. Here's Grayson Hugh, and uh, we'll see you on Monday. Thanks once again to Sean Murray and to Susan Bigelow. I know it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. Cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that, and talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh yeah, talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon. I already said that one. Avon. Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.